Romans chapter 8. There is only one thing more powerful than seeing the Holy Spirit work in someone else's life, and that is seeing him work in yours. Those are the words of Jim Cimbala, the pastor and author and the speaker at uh, the late uh, Moody Founders Week conference where the pastors uh, of Sailorville attended here just a couple of weeks ago. And when he spoke, his, his words did not, were not necessarily deep. Uh, they were not even necessarily profound. But every word carried weight because it was very evident as he spoke, the Spirit of God was really leading this man. We are in Romans chapter 8 as we are embarking on a one-month-plus mission of getting through this great passage of Scripture, which is a virtual theology of the Spirit of God, not complete theology. We have to do a sort of composite of Scripture to pull other, one, other Scripture in, but it's, a, it's the most theological passage on the Spirit of God found anywhere in, in the Bible, and we have been talking about His work in this world, in individuals' lives, and particularly those who lay claim to Jesus. We said a few weeks ago that He is a, a genuine person. He, as such, He is God. He, he has a personality. He loves us. We, we talked about him being involved in creation. We mentioned the fact that in the Old Testament, he's, he's sort of incognito. He doesn't, he's, he's there, he's even there brooding over creation in Genesis chapter 1, coming upon individuals for special purposes throughout the Old Testament, but not actually permanently, at least, indwelling them, though he would indwell individuals like Daniel and David. John even tells us in 1 John that it is virtually impossible from the heart to declare that Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. That's how important he is in our lives. The great author, knowing God, J.I. Packer, said this, The Christian life, in all of its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, Upsurging in worship and ongoing in witness is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So apart from Him, not only will there be no lively believers and no lively congregations, there will be no believers and no actual congregations at all, unquote. And Oswald Chambers perhaps put it best when he said, the Spirit is the first power we practically experience, but the last power we come to understand. But we must understand him. And what's more, more than understand him, we need to experience him in our lives. His power and his life-giving breath in our lives. If we're going to serve Jesus, really serve him in this life. We need to stop being afraid of acknowledging the Holy Spirit's presence, his power, his genuine guidance, and his love. Yes, his love. Before we're done with this great epistle to Romans, we're going to find out, Paul's going to tell us in chapter 15, and I quote, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Have you ever read that? To strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. The love of the Spirit. This is the reason why Symbola, in the message we heard, 
stepped to the side of the pulpit and he, he exhorted every pastor. He said, we in our churches need a fresh baptism of the love of God if we're going to reach this world. And I agree. We have said in the past that, best I can tell, there are 13 present active movements of the Spirit of God in our day right now. He's not inspiring the Bible anymore. He's not giving apostolic gifts anymore, but he is giving gifts. We said that he is restraining. He's restraining evil in this world. I know that's hard to believe when you see all the evil rampant in this world, but when he is removed, all hell breaks loose in this world, and all hell will break loose in this world. But he's restraining right now. He's convicting men of sin and righteousness and judgment. He is regenerating. That means he's the one who makes you come alive from your deadness when you place your faith in Jesus. He baptizes. That means he, he invisibly yet spiritually and real, in a real sense places us into the very body of Christ upon our faith in Christ. He indwells us. And we saw that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. If you don't have the spirit of, of God, you're not God's. He comes to live within us. We become the temple, the naos, not the building, the structure, but the, the inner sanctum of God. That's what that word temple in 1 Corinthians 6 is referring to. He indwells us. We become walking worshipers, so to speak. He seals us, and more accurately, he becomes the very seal upon our hearts. And that actually is the guarantee that what God begins, he will conclude, he will finish. We just sang, it is finished. It may be finished, that is, the sacrifice of Christ and subsequent resurrection is finished, but he's just started with you and I. And what he begins, he promises to finish, right? Philippians 1.6. He gifts us. He is the one who gives us gifts. And our gifts are not to be mistaken for things we're just really good at. Some of you are really good at certain things, but you're not gifted at certain things. The gifts are supernatural, and they take the body of Christ and they bind it together for the glory of God. The gifts never, never cause dissension. They cause unity and power in the body of Christ. He fills us. That means he's... And we're to be continuously filled, which means to be continuously controlled by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And the Spirit and the Word are always working in concert with one another. He sanctifies us. We've said this whole section of Romans 6 through 8 is all about sanctification. That means continuously sets us apart from the day of salvation till the day we go into glory, we are being continuously set apart. And he does that by producing in us supernaturally the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians 5 is talking about. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. He illumines us, which means he's the one who who turns the light on when you're reading the Word of God. It's like, yeah, I see that. He guides us. We saw that in verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the, what? They're the sons of God. And he intercedes. We haven't got there. That's next week in, the, in verses 26 and 20 and following. And he comforts us, does he not? He is the, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside and helps us in our dire need of help and need. So Paul, in this section here in Romans chapter Uh, 8 is going to introduce some of these subjective things that we referred to, like being led by God, Uh, like, you know, knowing internally that we are the children of God, verse 16, he witnesses to our spirits. And what's more, 
He is going to tell us how the Spirit of God sets us free to suffer. Yes, suffer well. It's one thing to suffer. It's another thing to suffer well. And the Holy Spirit is there for you to help you to do that. The Holy Spirit really proves his weight and his worth in our lives during these times. When, we're, when you're just kind of wondering, you don't know what to do, you don't know which way to turn, you've, you've looked at all the answers, there's nothing in Scripture that says go this way or go that way. But the Spirit of God really proves his weight and his worth during those times, doesn't it? And he also proves his weight and his worth during times of suffering, when there were just, be it physical, be it relational, be it social, be it whatever it is, and there are just the multiplicity of different kinds of suffering that we can endure. But he really proves his weight and his worth during these times when we're struggling. And some of you, this is my fear, especially in this day in which we live, some of you, your head is filled with truth, but your life has nothing to show that the Spirit of God is really moving and actively working in your life. Nothing practical, that is. You might even love Bible theology, but when your back is up against the wall and the rubber meets the road, and you're struggling to know which way to go or to handle some pressure or difficult situation in life, and you're overtaken, you find yourself in the dark. I'm here to tell you on the authority of Scripture today, that's not, that is not only not right, that's not even normal. If we know Jesus Christ, if you are truly a child of God, you have the Spirit of God within you, and these things should not be so. We should understand the direction of God. Yes, he'll, he'll move us through the dark. Yes, there'll be times of frustration, but we will come out and say, yes, I have been led by God. Our reaction to the charlatans of the charismatic movement who have all but kidnapped the truth of the Holy Spirit and held it hostage in their particular movements and turn churches into mausoleums, museums, and graveyards rather than life-pumping stations called churches that God intended to pour life into his people. And he pours life through his truth and by his spirit. The spirit literally spiritually animates us for God. The Holy Spirit has come to set us free. Free to love God, free to serve God, free to witness for God, free to move in the power of God, and yes, when the time comes, free to suffer for the glory of God. And we just sang about that. We love that song, 10,000 Reasons. But it is the truth of the song embedded in this text happening in your life. Let's look at the text, shall we? Verse 15. That's where we're going to pick it up here. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We don't like that last little addendum attached there, do we? Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. Can I get a witness to that? Who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we're saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Rhetorical question. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so, you see, dear ones, the Holy Spirit has come to set us free. And not just us, everything free. Just three things in this text. He frees us from slavery and fear. You see that right there in verse 15. From slave, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into this thing again, but this spirit of adoption we, that produces an intimacy with God. Slaves don't refer to their master affectionately, but sons refer to their fathers that way, right? To fall back into fear, that's what the law does. The law creates fear. And that's what legalism does. A legalistic lifestyle that says, I'm not going to walk in the Spirit. I'm walking by rules. I'm, all, I'm hung up on rules. I'm hung up, I'm hung up on, on this. I'm hung up on that. And when I live a legalistic life, I don't need the Holy Spirit. I just, all I need is a bunch of rules to live by. I'm good. I'm good. And I don't really think beyond the surface. Everything is right there on the surface when I live legalistically. It's never, there are never heart matters. That's why... David even said, God desires truth in the inward parts, and that's where the Spirit goes and frees us from that kind of slavery. If we're legalistic, it's everything we do. Everything we do, that, that affirms whether we're right with God. Things are going well. My business is working well. My marriage is working well. My kids are doing well. I must be good with God. That's a legalist. If that's you, you're a legalist. Just write it down. Our worth, our position, God is not more pleased with me if my marriage is good. Much as I want it to be good. God is pleased with me on the basis of what his son has done for me. And my sonship, I'm attached to him forever. It's a wonderful thing, by the way. I had a friend who had, a, who had befriended a Lutheran pastor several years ago. The Lutheran pastor, in his study of the word of God, had come to the... Uh, conclusion that the Bible teached, taught the security of the believer, that when you are truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. And yet he taught his people that they could lose their salvation. And my friend asked him, he said, why do you keep teaching your people that if you don't believe it? He said, well, I got to control in some way. That's a true story. But as appalling as that is, it's no different with us. If we claim that we have you know, Paul said this to the Galatians, you started in the spirit, now you're walking in the flesh. What are you doing? He's pulling his hair out over these people. He mentions the word adoption. That speaks of our position that we have in Christ. As children, we are related to God. As sons, we have all his rights 
and all the rights and privileges of sons of God. The great theologian Sharnock wrote, Adoption gives us the privilege of sons. Regeneration, the nature as sons. So our kids inherit whatever wealth we leave behind. They might even know about it, but they don't really realize that wealth until you're gone or we're gone, right? Parents. Nevertheless, they, if they are an heir, they have every right to expect it to come their way. And what adoption does is it removes this, this law thing. It removes this fear and creates this new intimacy with God. Do you remember who else said, Abba, Father? You remember, don't you? It was Jesus. Just before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said that in Mark chapter 14. What did he say? He said this. He said, Abba, Father. Same exact phrase. All things are possible for you. So this, is a, this isn't simply an emotional uh, statement. He's, it's an intellectual thing. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He's expressing his desire. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is true intimacy with God that we enter into. One writer put it, Paul is contrasting the fear of a slave with the affection of a son. Now, the process of adoption in Bible times, while not exactly the same as the process of adoption in our day, it did have some similarities. It was very detailed. It was very ceremonial. And it was a powerful process. We had five babies born to Sailorville Church this last week. Five. We got to get this addition taken care of. Now, there was never a question that any of those babies born would be the sons and daughters of the parents who produced them. The waiting was real, but the outcome was certain. There was no doubt, right? But you who have been through the process of adoption, different story, right? The waiting was real. The process was hard, expensive, emotionally draining. The outcome in doubt, even, even after you supposedly secure the child, there's that waiting period. Do I have him? Do we have him? But when that thing is signed over, he's yours. Nobody can take him away from you. And he has all the rights as an actual son or daughter of yours. And when that day came, when he was yours, or listen to this, you were his. He wasn't just yours. You were his. And there was a joy no natural parent could ever relate to. And you, those who've been through adoption, you know the truth of that. And when that child calls out one day, as some of them have, and calls you daddy, there will be no doubt who his daddy is. And that daddy will come, come calling when he calls out. Listen, dear ones in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to free you from the fear of ever being spiritually orphaned again. He is yours and you are his with all the rights and privileges of a son. Secondly, the Spirit of God frees us from doubt and gives us assurance. You see that in verse 16. He says that the Spirit himself witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, here's another subjective statement, but it's true, isn't it? The psalmist said 
In Psalm 35, he said, say to my soul, you are my salvation. Have you ever read that? That's the psalmist asking God to speak to his soul and, and just remind him that God is, God is our salvation. I've often wondered why the assurance of salvation is so elusive to some of you. Since the day I trusted Christ as my Savior, I have never doubted that I was on my way to heaven because I knew it had nothing to do with me. And that's part of the problem. If, our, if we are filled with doubt, it may be because we think we have something to do with this. The struggle is real for some of you. Why? I, I, I don't know if it's because you didn't genuinely trust Christ. It could very well be because you have not come to a true understanding of the veracity of this thing, that this is the very word of God. And it's just as simple as believing God, isn't it? Remember Abraham? Abraham believed God. God accounted it unto him for what? We saw that back in chapter 4. The same is true with the assurance of salvation. We simply believe the word of God. It's as simple as it is. This is God stating the facts right here. You don't have to worry whether it's true or not. You know it's true. And so... The Holy Spirit is the ultimate witness in witnessing to us. In Hebrews 10, he's witnessing in us. In 1 John 5, he's he's witnessing uh, sort of, I mean, I'm sorry, in Hebrews 10, he's witnessing to us. In 1 John 5, he's witnessing with us here in this passage of Scripture. Our spirits, before we came to Christ, were dead. That's what Ephesians 2 says, right? Dead to God before salvation. Ephesians 2 says we came alive in Christ. And now the Holy Spirit's indwelling resides in our human spirit. And in so doing, he assures that we are God's. It's often been said that assurance, the the feeling part of salvation, I feel like I'm saved, is, is the result of an obedient life. And there is a strong element of truth to that. But only partly true. It starts with a complete reliance on the authority of Scripture as the very words of God. And then it continues in a life of obedience. As you walk with God in concert with the Spirit of God, there's never a doubt. It doesn't mean you don't fail. It doesn't mean you don't struggle, but you're, you don't doubt anymore. We want this assurance that God is working, do we not? Don't we want it in our congregation? Around Easter time last year, we, just, we were just praying, praying for souls to come to Jesus, praying for God to just do a mighty work in our midst, and we fell upon this text in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul writes, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. How would that ever happen? It'll only happen if the Spirit of God is doing a work. Falling on his face? That doesn't sound very proper. But the Spirit of God, when he is at work, he frees us from the doubt that he's at work in us or among us. Gives us the assurance of our salvation. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time for the balance of our time on this third point. He frees us to suffer well. 
I visited with a brother in Christ recently who has a chronic disease. And he is truly suffering. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor, he says, I want to suffer well. And my heart went out to him because I knew he absolutely meant it. He was suffering, but he wanted to suffer well. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to do so, dispensing grace where grace is needed. Look at verse 18. He starts with the suffering part at the end of verse 17. If we're children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. There is an expectancy that suffering will occur in our life in all of its, all of its different hues. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Everybody does. No exception. But he tells us this great verse, some of you have memorized, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You love that verse, don't you? One writer puts it this way, the Apostle Paul is inviting us to compare our suffering to future glory. But is he really? I disagree with that writer. In fact, while I understand when you read that, I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. I understand that that verse sort of invites us to compare the suffering we're going through with the glory which is to come. But actually, the text teaches us the exact opposite. Did you see the key phrase? It's not worth comparing. He's saying don't compare. In other words, what we have waiting for us is so unimaginably wonderful. The comparison to any suffering on this side is an insult to the glory that is on the other side. You can't compare. It doesn't matter the suffering you're going through. It is unimaginable. The distance between them is so great, it's not worth comparing. That's what he's saying. That's the reason I agree with the individual who said, if we really, that's why I don't believe these stories of people going to heaven and coming back. Because if, you, if we really saw what was on the, on the other side, we'd be jumping off cliffs to get there. And then he jumps into the whole creation thing. And he talks about the creation groaning, verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. In Romans 1, in Romans chapter 1, we learned that creation itself is a witness to the greatness of God. And who could argue against that, right? But are you ready for this? It's not a perfect witness. The very wording in this section testifies to a problem. Perfection doesn't, quote, wait with eager longing. The Greek word suggests straining your neck to see somebody who's coming, but is not here yet. 
Perfection isn't subjected to futility. The word futility literally means to be aimless and carries the idea of lacking purpose and meaning. That doesn't sound like perfection to me, does it? He's talking about creation. The need to be set free from bondage and corruption certainly doesn't speak of perfection. And finally, perfection doesn't groan. It's the only time this word is ever used. It means, literally means I groan together. That's what, literally what it means. Like a woman in childbirth. Interestingly enough, that's the first curse that God mentions to Eve at the fall in Genesis 3. You will give birth with a lot of pain. Amen, women? The point is that together, the entire created universe is under the burden of sin and it is struggling. Again, Genesis 3, what does God say to Adam? What is going to be the first result? Let me tell you something. One is your marriage is going to struggle because, you know, she's going to want to dominate you. You're going to overly dominate her, and you're going to have a struggle with one another. And by the way, while you're planting the garden, thorns and thistles you're going to have to battle with, and you're going to have to invent herbicides to deal with it and this and that. He didn't say that, but you get the point. I mean, little did they realize that their sin was so was so prevalent that it would affect the entire universe itself right to the very start. This is the reason why we have solar flares and black holes and dying stars and meteorites and here on terra firma hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, tsunamis, earthquakes, snowmageddons. Droughts, and a whole lot more. And how's this for controversy amongst conservative Christians? Wait till I throw this one out there. Global warming. Let me tell you something. You listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because this is dead serious. I don't know if global warming is true or not. I know this. If our theology is true to the Bible, it is certainly possible If we believe everything is breaking down, both heavenly and earthly bodies, then we must make room that part of that breakdown involves everything, including the climate. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing we can do about it. Nothing measly men can do to stop something like this. That's like asking a five-year-old to put out a raging fire with a squirt gun. Not going to happen. But don't get hung up. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. Don't get hung up on the arguments. Well, it's just a cyclical thing. It happens every 50 years, every 100 years, every 500. What kind of talk is that? You what kind of talk? I'll tell you what kind of talk that is. That's called uniformitarianism. Have you ever heard that word? That means uh, nothing ever changes. Everything has always been the way it is. That's interesting. That's how Peter described mockers. Let me tell you something. Peter goes on to say, uh, let me remind you, God interrupted things and he flooded the entire earth one time. He's going to do some wrecking like you've never seen it in the future. That's why I like what MacArthur said one time when somebody said, well, look what humans are doing to the earth. He said, humans, wait till you see what Jesus is going to do to it. Listen, this isn't saying that creation sinned. 
Only created personalities, angels and humans, can be guilty of sin. But creation was, verse 20, subjected. Hupatasso. It means to be forced into submission in this, in this regard. Because of the screw-ups that we did. Our sin affected everything. And to futility. This aimless, meaningless, purposelessness. Whatever that is. Creation... And look at verse 19. It's even assigned, you know, personality-like traits, though it actually doesn't possess personality. Uh, Longing, uh, groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. That's what the creation supposedly is longing for, the revealing of the sons of God. The word revealing is the word, we get our word revelation for this word. Apocalypsis, it means the unveiling. It's referring to what Ephesians chapter 2 says when God puts us on display. This future glory when God puts all the sons of God, every one of us who have been adopted, every one of us who have become sons of the Almighty, He's going to display us like trophies. And creation, the whole creation is groaning until that day. And the point is, when we are finally free, the corrupted creation will be free as well. And meantime, verse 22, we groan. Can I get another witness to that? Stenazzo, it means to be squeezed on the inside. In fact, the word even carries the idea of something either inaudible or just barely audible as we are being internally squeezed and carries the idea of Expressing grief, inarticulate and semi-articulate in sound. It's like having a kidney stone. Anybody here ever had a kidney stone? You're just groaning on the inside. And this is the description of not only creation, but you and I as well. We take vitamins, we take supplements, we ingest, inject, we exercise, we work out. And that's the, and yet the psalmist said, all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years with a, a sigh. Have you ever read that? Listen. Listen to this. The advancing age flies, and that we live in, flies in the face of a collapsing universe and bodies to match. Advancement will not win. Technology will not win. Science will not win. Knowledge, though Daniel tells us it's going to, be, it's going to explode in the latter times, we're seeing it now. Knowledge will not win. We are not headed for the winner's circle. We are headed for a loser's shame. This earth, this creation, you and me both, our bodies, we don't, need a, we don't need victory. We need a victor. We need a rescuer. We need somebody to come and deliver us from this destruction, and he will come. We need Jesus. This is what Paul meant when he said, Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come. Why? Because this life is not meant to be all that God intends for you and I. He has destined us for glory. So stop trying to live to be 130 years old. It's not going to happen. 
I'm not against all those things, and I take a few supplements myself. But I have no illusions. I have no illusions. The older I get, the better I was. It's just that simple. But this, this is how we suffer well. With the full-blown assurance that Jesus, our rescuer, is coming again to completely save us. Did you hear what I just said? Did you know you haven't been totally saved yet? I'm talking to those of you who have a knowledge of God. I'm talking about those of you who have trusted Jesus. You have not been totally saved yet. Ultimate salvation will occur when, our, when we are glorified with the Savior, and that's when our bodies get saved, and our bodies really need to get saved. I mean, look at it. He says that. Does, isn't that exactly what he says? Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Our souls have been redeemed. There's no question about whether we're going to heaven. This is what we mean when we talk about already and not yet. The phrase fruit, first fruits of the Spirit would have reminded the Jewish Christians in this group of the Old Testament feast of first fruits, where the first part of the harvest was dedicated to God and served as the absolute promise of the rest of the harvest to come in. And Jesus' resurrection is the same thing, a first fruit of our resurrection to come, right? If God has placed his spirit in you, the rest, the final restoration of the universe and you is virtually guaranteed. Virtually guaranteed. Some of you this morning are pretty beat up. Age and circumstances You're getting old, your body is breaking down, you're tired. Every day you groan right along with this old earth and universe. Some of you have buried husbands and some of you have buried wives and some of you have buried kids. And you've seen the last enemy at work, death. And the truth is that some of you are doing more whining than worshiping. That's not good. That's not what the Holy Spirit produces in you. He produces, he frees you up to suffer well. That's what he does. It's time to change that. It's time to walk in the Spirit and allow him to free you up in whatever you're going through in your life. And I don't know what you're going through. Some of you don't have the Spirit of God in you. And again, verse 9 says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not God's. And if God is speaking to your heart, you say, well, I've never had any assurance. That might be because you've never been saved. You've never placed your faith in Jesus who died for your sins, who died for your sins, who took your sin upon himself and rose from the dead. Would you place your faith in him today? That's the gospel. That's the good news. It can be yours. Trust in Jesus today if you haven't. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity now to just 
think on these amazing things about your Holy Spirit. And how he is a part of making us free, setting us free. Free from fear that the law, the law does in our lives. We're thankful, Lord, for the fact that the law has driven us to see our sin. But we realize it can't save us. And some of us, Lord, here, we live by law. We don't live by grace. Forgive us for that. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that frees us from doubt and gives us a, a sure assurance of your salvation. He witnesses to our own spirits that we are your children. And we thank you for that spirit of God. We love you for that. Help us to remain in that love and walk in that love. And Lord, we've seen in this passage of scripture that while our sin subjected not just us, but the earth and everything on it, the universe and everything in it to sin, and it groans waiting for us to be put on display so that it too can be freed up someday. And we have learned, Lord, that that you desire to free us up in our suffering, and we surely will suffer. Some of us are suffering greatly right now. But to suffer well because of your Holy Spirit. Help us to do that, we pray. I pray for those who are here without Jesus that today might be a day of surrender, a day of sorrow, a day of repentance, a day of saying, I I believe in you, Lord Jesus. I receive you today as my Lord and my Savior so that they might experience your great love, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit living in them. Thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.